Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Access Talk with Trish, a 30-minute weekly online radio segment dedicated to examining the good, the bad, and the reality of accessibility in our community. I am your host for the show, Trish Robichaud, disability awareness coach, author, facilitator, and motivational speaker, a woman with a disability, but definitely not a disabled woman. The Access Talk with Trish radio show can be heard live on Wednesdays at 1130 Eastern Time at accesstalkwithtrish.com, or you can listen to past show recordings on demand at any time at the same address or on iTunes if that's how you roll. This show is brought to you by Changing Paces, an accessibility consulting firm that simplifies disability legislation for organizations that think they don't have the time or money for compliance. Visit changingpaces.com and nurture her culture of inclusion where everyone matters. And now let me introduce you to our guest for today. Angela Brown is born and educated in Ontario with post-secondary studies in business sociology and law. Her professional experience includes teaching and some course coordination at Brock University in Criminology and Corrections, serving as executive director on a mental health advocacy agency in the 90s. She went on to a variety of policy and project-based projects for various provincial government ministries and eventually moved into federal policy work by the late 90s. Angela also started her legal practice, her legal advocacy practice in the 90s, and became licensed as a paralegal in 2007. She continues to participate in a variety of community agency programs, such as providing training for a job coaching program on labor and human rights law. Having been on the AODA Standards Development Committee for Employment, Angela clearly has a passion for employment rights and inclusive practices. Currently operating a full-service practice paralegal firm focusing on administration, employment, human rights, and disability law, she can be found at legaladvocacy.ca. Welcome, Angela. You certainly have an impressive background in both grassroots advocacy and making a difference at the policy level. I'm so impressed. Well, we try. <laughs> is, uh, we try all the time, and sometimes it gets very frustrating. And I'm guessing you and I are probably round about in the same age bracket, even. And we, you know, we've been at this for wow. You've been at it longer than I have. I started in mid '90s, and you were early '90s. It's just been uh, what a journey. Yes, it has been. It's been uh, something where I didn't think about certain things, and when something happens, then uh, then you start realizing that other things don't become accessible to you anymore. Exactly. And. And then you start having to fight that and fight everything. I've had to be in fights all my life about everything. But you know what? It's because you're a fighter. That's why. That's why the, you were the one that made, fought those fights, because you have that in you. You know, you have the ability to stand up to the man, so to speak. You have the ability to stand up because you're also capable of working on a level playing field with those same people. And that what's, that's what makes you an amazing advocate. I see that you're currently on the steering committee for the ODSP Action Coalition. I know there must be a lot of systemic barriers in that system. Oh, absolutely. ODSP, uh, many people with disabilities in Ontario, no, not everybody, but Many people with disabilities in Ontario that don't have other sources of income 
go on to the Ontario Disability Support Program, which is like social assistance, but it's a specialized program set aside for people with disabilities because it has extra healthcare benefits and it pays a little bit more than general assistance, but still people who are on ODSP, they're still living in poverty and the way they are treated, they're not given the same citizenship rights and choices as other people who are not on ODSP. Mm. So let me ask you, does that, does being on that steering committee, does that give you an opportunity to influence the accessibility of the program? We have made several victories over the years uh, trying to make the program easier. One of the recent ones was when they started doing the medical reviews of people. So if you've been on, on ODSP for, say, two, three, four years, and the government at that time thought that you could recover from your disability, they sent out a form back to you. You had to get filled out again by your doctor, and it was a complete package as if you were applying for the first time and they had to fill out that whole package and then send it back and many people got turned down at that stage where they had to go back to uh, wow. to appeal it again so we were getting upset because this was taking a lot of the time of uh, us advocates so we had to take that back to the government and say enough of this enough already you know mm -hmm. yes there are people who do recover but they generally go off on their own Mm -hmm. okay, these are the folks that uh, go back and they say, I think I'm just going to go back to work or whatever, or they mm -hmm. get married or something. And and then they just said, I don't want to be involved in this anymore. That's fine. But the problem is many people do not recover, mm -hmm. especially the mental health people. And they were focusing a lot on the mental health people. And what happens is some people moved addresses or, or they don't get their mail regularly right. and they never got this. And some people were living on the street and there was no way to reach them. And then the timeline mm -hmm. passes and boom, and suddenly no more money. Right. And then they end up in a crisis. Yeah. And so um, a lot of the people who work with homeless, work with mental health, work with the legal clinics or people like me, we, we see them, and then we said, okay, now we have to go and fight this for them. Mm, well, God bless you. So we've made a very key change now. They're no longer doing unnecessary medical reviews. They cut down on the number of reviews they're doing. Beautiful. And then the reviews they're doing themselves, they actually changed the form, so it's so much less onerous to the healthcare professionals. Wonderful. And it's, yeah, and it's uh, something that they can complete, and... Uh, and there's some room if a person develops new conditions and that sort of thing. So it's a very uh, flexible system now. It's one of our victories. The other victory was they were trying to drop uh, the work-related benefit. Mm -hmm. The work-related benefit is for people who are on ODSP and say they take a part-time job and they go out and you get an extra $100 a month. Mm -hmm. okay? Just for getting the job or for declaring any earnings. Right. They were trying to remove that. Okay? Wow. And so we did a big survey, went around the province and asked people what would happen to them if they lost a $100 a month bonus. Right? So people wrote in, we did a survey, went back to the ministry. We fought and uh, we met with every cabinet minister that was interested in listening to us. Wow. And then they turned around, they reversed the decision. Wonderful. <laughs> Congratulations. So a, lot of things, a lot of things we do, you know, like our, like our group of people, I'm, I'm very proud of them. Unfortunately, we haven't accomplished what we really need to do, which is raise the rates. <laughs> hey, well, you, know, you just running. keep pushing. You have to just yep. keep pushing. That's all yep. there is to it, right? Um, I'm thrilled. 
to, to hear the positive stories. Do you have any specific advice that you'd aim at our ODSP system for making the process more accessible? Well, the process really needs to be a lot less uh, legalistic and uh, they need to start listening to the people that uh, mm -hmm. are seeking assistance. There are people who have workers that are less than friendly. Mm -hmm. hey, people in the offices, like in the various parts of Ontario, the, the ones that work with people directly, the case managers, mm -hmm. they don't know what your disability is. And very frequently, they, they don't try to understand what your disability is. So they're be trained to be sensitive to disabilities, but mm -hmm. I still like to know where they got their training from or mm -hmm. if they did. Because mm -hmm. okay, some of them are very uh, rude, so I have to file internal reviews, I have to get them to... Uh, mm. I find it very abusive, the way they conduct themselves. Like I have one person who, um, I, who I have right now who hasn't been able to file her taxes for a number of reasons. Mm -hmm. right? As, uh, and then she was sick. She had a lot of issues going on. And, mm -hmm. uh, and instead of trying to be patient and trying to offer some assistance or referrals to somebody who can help her or whatever, what they did is they decided just to cut her off. Oh, my. And, so I wrote a letter to them and I said, well, I said, I guess that's going to get her taxes done real fast, eh? When mm -hmm. all she was trying to do was get the funds to do so. Now she has no funds and that's, that means the taxes aren't going to be done. Mm -hmm. So how's that going to be resolved? <laughs> like wow. I have to write these letters to these people like, and ask for an internal review. And if the internal review comes out where it says that uh, they still are taking the same stand, I filed through the Social Benefits Tribunal and I asked the Social Benefits Tribunal to continue their assistance which is very crucial for these people because they don't have anything else to live on. Wow. Yeah. How many of wow. people out there who are employed, if they haven't done something or, or are late in getting a certain project done for their employer, does their employer have a right to cut off their salary? Wow. Hey? It doesn't happen in the business no. world. If it does, I said no. there's lots of legal consequences. But these people do what they want anyway. What an indignity. Yeah, it's very indignified. I guess so. Oh my goodness. Thank goodness and blessings to you. Blessings to you, honestly, Angela. Um, and I hope that the people who need to find you and need your services find their way to you. We'll definitely be giving your contact information at the end of the show. Absolutely. Absolutely. So please keep listening. I understand that you rely on public transit for in the Niagara region. Please tell us a little about, about the case that you filed against the region and the outcome that's evolved since then. Okay, this started in 2005 or 2006. I made an application to uh, a position at that time. I forget what it was, but it would pay me $29 an hour, $30 an hour. Right? Mm -hmm. And it was, a, it was type of emergency dispatch work and that kind of thing. I don't know whether it was for the ambulance or whether it was just general for police or whatever. And um, then I was called because uh, they looked at that. And then they told me, he says, uh, are you able to get to the training facility? And this is where the uh, dispatch would be able to take place. So they told me where it was. And it's not even on a bus route, nothing. Hmm. So anyway, so I told them, I said, look, I said, why does a person have to drive if they're going to be sitting in a, in a warehouse or some kind of call center all day? where they're not having to travel or to deliver anything. Oh, well, that's just the way it is. And she says, and you don't drive? And I, and I told him I don't. And he said, you know, there's plenty of call center jobs that do hire people that don't drive. I just said, look, there's got to be intercity transit. Hey, I was still doing starting work again, do my paralegal business and so forth, because that's basically all I can do, because you've got to employ yourself because nobody else will. Mm -hmm. hey? 
so I did. And um, basically, my travel to court in Welland was 70 bucks every time I went. Welland is about 15 kilometers from here, <laughs> eh? from where I am. But yeah. somehow, they didn't have trips to Welland at the time mm-hmm. that were public transit. And I was getting sick and tired of forking out 70 bucks every time I had to go to Welland. Mm-hmm. And I said, why does a person who drive maybe have to pay two or three bucks, you know, literally, mm-hmm. out of pocket to go there? I said, and I have to pay like 70 bucks. I was furious. Mm-hmm. I write letters to the city council. Oh, well, we don't have any money for that. And I said, but you've got money for roads. You've got money for bridges and infrastructure. Mm-hmm. Take some of that, put it towards transit. Transit should be part of infrastructure. Yeah, I said, it's all the same thing. It's the same pot of money, right? And they kept telling me, oh, well, we don't have a budget. Then we have to have a triple majority. They had all kinds of reasons why they didn't have it, okay? At the time I did this, okay, there wasn't as much interest in transit, like, from the public. Mm -hmm. I was the only person, really. I felt very alone, and I was burying my head against the wall, okay? Because nobody else seemed to be talking about transit at all, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So how did you make some inroads? I made some inroads by, first of all, filing a suit with the Human Rights Tribunal. It really wasn't a whole lot of things. I didn't win in the end, but um, but I went through the reconsideration phase. And then just before I finished the reconsideration phase, which was 2010, okay, four years of this. Mm-hmm. Okay. So 2010 comes, and then uh, I was going through the reconsideration phase. I was doing the next phase up because uh, they still didn't... Uh, Believe me, because I, I will take it to divisional. I'll take it to the Supreme Court if I have to. Mm-hmm. I'm that way. Okay? So anyways, they came back. And uh, then all of a sudden, I was at a meeting at the region where they were public about it, that they had a proposal put forward for a pilot project to run intercity transit between Welland, St. Catharines, and Niagara Falls. Interesting. Perfect. Perfect. But mm-hmm. you know what that had to do with? I was telling them I had to go to Niagara Falls and I had to go to Welland, and this was costing me money. So guess where the transit roads were? St. Catharines, Niagara Falls. And- mm-hmm. Well, they're natural. They would be the natural yeah. places for inter, uh, inter-transit uh, connection. Yeah, and this was all I was asking for, and that's what I put in into the suit. So, mm-hmm. and they just, uh, oh, like, uh, where did this come from? Like, you know, like I started wondering, like, where did this come from? Did I have to kick somebody's butt, literally? Mm-hmm. To get to that point where where somebody would start saying we needed that, and now it's a little more extensive, and now they're putting a little bit more. So after that happened, there was the pilot project, and it started. They made a very deliberate effort to try to sabotage the pilot project uh-huh. by not telling people about it. Okay, mm. so what I did, okay, people would go to the bus station and ask for the great coach to Niagara Falls. That I'd say, there's another bus here that's cheaper. It'll go to Niagara Falls. It's a regional transit. I would stand right in the middle of the bus terminal and I'd be shouting about it. <laughs> <laughs> and pointing fingers at the bus, you know, where it is. <laughs> yeah. So I was doing this constantly until another girl, girlfriend of mine, she started called meetings on the bus, right? Mm-hmm. Where we used to just have meetings on the bus. People would just take the bus, pay, pay for the fare, and we would go on the different routes. And mm-hmm. we would talk about anything, politics, whatever. And it was fun, mm-hmm. you know. So she was trying to educate people by by doing these meetings on the bus. And it started working. And then uh, then it became an issue with the Niagara Poverty Reduction Network, where they started picking up the issue and their Chamber of Commerce started picking up the issue. 
where were these guys when I was fighting this? <laughs> oh, my goodness. To see, you know, self-advocacy is not something we learn in school, you know. It takes people a long time to feel confident enough to step up and speak out. I, yeah, this um, is what I told him. I, at that time, it was my mayor, who is now our mayor, but he was the director of the of the Chamber of Commerce, which I'm also a member of. And I kept telling him, where were you guys back then when I was doing all of this? Awesome. Hey? Yeah, Why did you guys sure. speak up, you know? For sure, for sure. But now is better yep. than not at all, right? We're just going to take a quick break yeah, there. We're going to go to a commercial break, and we're going to come back. And when we come back, we're going to talk about this whole self-employment and ODSP, how it doesn't work well. Okay, we'll be right back. Devon has been with his company for over five years, since before his legs started giving him trouble. He loves his job, he's great at it, and he plans to stay with the company till retirement if possible. Problem is, it's getting difficult for him to walk from his desk to the washroom. His supervisor, Aisha, lets Devon know that she's noticed he's having some trouble. She suggests they move his desk closer to the entrance and the washroom. Devon is relieved and agrees. This is an example of a basic accommodation that helps make a workplace inclusive. Did you know that 50% of accommodations don't cost a dime and 80% cost $500 or less? The inclusion of people with disabilities in the workforce is the best answer to our current labor shortages. And making businesses accessible to customers with disabilities sees you tapping into their $32 billion spending power. Sound good? Then let a changing paces, warm, and friendly expert take you by the hand and walk you through the steps to making your business accessible to everyone. Visit us at changingpaces.com today. Okay, welcome back. We're back here with Angela Brown talking about uh, accessibility and the law and all of the systems that disabilities here in Ontario. Oh my goodness. So clearly transportation or lack of it is a barrier for employment for many people with disabilities. What other barriers would you say get in the way of employment, Angela? Um, if they're on ODSP, there's a lot of disincentives built in. Mm -hmm. And people are not, like, first of all, like, in 2006, they changed it where you were deducted 50% from the first dollar earned. Mm -hmm. And later on, they changed it so it went up to $200, and and then you had 50% after that. Mm -hmm. okay? But that's still too much, right? Because mm -hmm. I asked them for a study when we were doing the ODSP Action Coalition. We found out, uh, I asked them to do a marginal effective tax rate. People mm -hmm. who are working and say they're working and getting thousand fifteen hundred dollars a month of employment income and they're on ODSP. They may be part of a couple or something. And the money is billed back, taxed back, including your loss of your child benefit, uh everything, not including subsidized housing. Mm -hmm. But uh your but your uh, um just the ODSP itself with the earnings, you're taxed at about eighty seven percent of your income. Wow. Yeah. If yeah. If the premier would suggest the same thing to all these wealthy people out there, telling them <laughs> you're going to be taxed at 50% from the first dollar earned from now on, guys. Mm -hmm. hey, how do you think that will go over with the economic club and all these fancy people from the business community? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Hey, I think it'll go over like a lead balloon. I guess so. So, yeah. So why does it? Why is it good? And why is it an incentive for people with disabilities? to be deducted in that way when it is not an incentive for 
wealthier people who want to invest or create jobs and so forth. Mm-hmm. Self-employment and ODSP, they don't mix well, do they? No, they don't. Okay? Like they First of all, when they first started doing this, and they wrote up a policy. This was not a law. It was never a law, but it was a policy. So if you're on ODSP and you want to become self-employed, you go to your worker and get a self-employment kit, then they just let you be self-employed. Mm-hmm. Register your business, register that stuff. You can deduct certain costs okay, from your from your income, but not the same as what Revenue Canada would allow oh. you to deduct. Right. Hey, like you can deduct your business license, you can deduct your some of your transportation at, uh, at the rate that is, and you're allowed to have a second vehicle if you use it exclusively for business. Mm-hmm. There's a few things like that that they had that was in place. And then um, what they didn't do for a long time was they didn't allow you, once your business got really busy, they didn't allow you to hire a contract person or hire anybody who's paid to work with you. Oh, okay. And this applied whether you're a spouse of a person with a disability or whether you're the disabled person himself. I'm a spouse of. Mm-hmm. I'm not on it myself, but my spouse is. Basically, in any family nowadays, you find two incomes because mm-hmm. people cannot live on one income unless uh, you're on a sunshine list or something. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> I said, I, and I told them, and they actually dragged me in to to go talking to OW. They told me that I had to go to OW because they uh, were requiring people to do that at the time, uh, who are spouses of people who are on OW. I So they can help them get jobs. And little so did they know what they were getting into. <laughs> oh, they soon learned <laughs> after mm-hmm. I met with them what kind of person I am. Hey. <laughs> mm-hmm. And uh, they just kind of took it aback and said, oh, well, we'll just cut your husband off. I said, go ahead. I've got BD on speed dial. I said, do you think I'm going to take that as a threat? I said, you, you just watch me. Hey, I remember mm-hmm. I was mad. A couple months later, they wrote me a letter said, don't worry about it. We know you're self-employed. You're, you meet the requirements, blah, blah, blah. And now there's a suit going on that, uh, well, self-employment. Okay, I'll do that first and I'll talk about the other suit. So what I did is I, I went in there and I just took it to the SBT and I got myself an exemption. Okay? Very good. So they won't touch me for that. Okay? So I can do what I want basically with my business except that Very I good. still have to declare against my husband. Without okay? compromising. So, yeah. Yeah, so uh, they finally allowed me to do this and they said don't don't deduct anything for from Angel Brown for anything on this purpose. Just let her declare it. So then later on, there was a case called Abby. A person was starting another business of her own. She went to the Human Rights Tribunal. Okay, this is different than the Social Benefits Tribunal. Mm-hmm. Social Benefits Tribunal can decide on something that happens to you, okay? And you can decide. Human Rights Tribunal can make some differences for everybody else. Right. So this person went to the Human Rights Tribunal. She tried to set up a business that required subcontractors there's several subcontractors she wanted to hire to make her business work mm-hmm. and it'd be flexible with each of her clients which subcontractors they needed and so forth and she had it all designed it was and it was a good idea so she started operating it and then their first month they told her oh we have to take all the money off that you deducted to, that you paid your subcontractors because you're not allowed to have subcontract so she quit her business literally shut it down and then she went to the human rights tribunal it still wanted an overpayment from her so the Human Rights Tribunal had the director on the stand, had all these other people on the stand, and she represented herself and uh, 
the Human Rights Tribunal came out and said, no, you can't do that. You have to rewrite your policies to allow for subcontracting. So they're changing the policy. They didn't quite change it for um, employment yet, but they're still working with the coalition now to, uh, for our input to put it in. And I'm, I'm just Very thinking good. of just rewriting the policy and sending it to the guy up there. Okay? Mm-hmm. So I said, this, this policy as rewritten will be exactly compliant. Okay? So put it in. Right, <laughs> exactly. Okay? There you go. Yeah. There you go. And then, and then the other thing, people cannot get married or live with somebody common law. If they try to do this without telling ODSP, they can get charged with fraud. If somebody who's not on ODSP tries to live with somebody, they don't get charged with fraud. Who cares? That's mm. their business. Okay? So it becomes an issue of privacy where people are, are definitely being treated differently mm-hmm. under both privacy legislation and human rights legislation and under the Family Law Act as well. Wow. We tried the Family Law Act so far. It still is kind of going along the side where you have to depend on family. But that's going to go to, uh, it's a case called Chamberlain, mm-hmm. and we wanted it done here. Hey, but, uh, of course, the minister thought otherwise. <laughs> mm-hmm. But uh, that's just one battle. Let's so hope they, for continued opportunities to make our voices heard. I got a couple of cases where they had to respect uh, people as being two separate entities because they're separating, and I had to get his retroactive benefits actually paid back to him instead of to his spouse. Oh, good. Good, good for them. So I do a few things. I, I have to keep fighting this thing and keep beating it. As a summary, Angela, um, what do you think that we as a society can do to or keep in mind on a daily basis to minimize barriers to accessibility? I don't necessarily mean the systemic barriers that you know we've been focusing on. I mean, in general, what do we all need to keep in mind to be able to minimize barriers wherever we are? Well, it depends on who you are. Like if you're a landlord or if you're an employer or if you're uh, um, some, you have to make your jobs available to everybody, no matter who they are. Mm-hmm. And the trouble is people need the education, you know, like if you've always driven a car, everybody drives in your mm-hmm. world, everybody drives. Right. Okay? You don't consider that some people might not. Half of people with disabilities don't drive. Mm-hmm. And I and one of the guys who's also an advocate told me that that number might even be higher. Okay? Mm-hmm. But uh, I know clearly that 30% of Niagara doesn't drive okay, for various reasons. They're not all disabled. Some of them just mm-hmm. choose not to mm-hmm. got the license. Okay? But the point is, what happens to these people? Where do they go? Where do they work? Mm-hmm. You know, we have to start thinking about what we're doing, what we're offering, and and what people can do. We have to consider, as an employer, you have to consider what your job actually requires. Mm-hmm. Right? If it requires that a person drives, like if I'm hiring a chauffeur, yes, that person better have their driver's license. Of course, yeah. <laughs> but if I'm hiring a person to man my desk and take my phone calls and to occasionally run out and do chores and so forth, I'm not going to expect a driver's license. They're going to do how they get it, and then they pay their mileage or whatever. So what I hear you saying is that you're encouraging people to be more flexible, be more open to unique.